writes this. He writes, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for, this is important, a little while. So just catch what's going on. Angel comes, chain, binds Satan. Satan's put into this pit, this abyss, and kept there, as the text says, for a thousand years. Then verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Confused yet? <laughs> oh, Revelation. Look out. All right, verse 7. We're going we're gonna to get this whole chapter in. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released, just as uh, verse 3 said. He's released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and false prophet were. And they were tormented day and night, forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Boom. There it is. All right, we got to pray because we need help. So you know, this is one of the most debated texts within evangelicalism. We're tackling one of the toughest passages. Um, but it's important to note, just before I pray, chapter 19 just to review, we've seen the beast and the false prophet taken down. And there is this incredible battle that happens. Remember, the, the birds are invited to feast on the corpses, so to speak. It's, it's, it's incredible language. 
But now we have something of another picture, and it's Satan who's being dealt with. And ultimately, they are all cast into the lake of fire. So let's pray for clarity, and we'll jump into it. God, we ask for clarity now. Um, God, will you, uh, by your Spirit, move among us? And even in the complexities of texts like this, God, guard our heart from becoming skeptical towards Scripture. Uh, But would it be that we become people who um, see your word as worthy to kind of wrestle with it, to seek out what is true, Um, and even in seeking out what is true, to to stand on on these truths and, and humbly stand on those truths, even in relationship to those who might differ from us. So God, we thank you for your word. We even know right now in the complexities of this text that you would want to benefit our own hearts to encourage us. So Spirit, we give you sway. Would you just come and tend to us? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as I said, this is one of the most debated texts in all of scripture, and the debate centers on the 1,000 years that is referenced uh, over six times in this passage. It is more popularly referred to, as you see in the title, the millennium. And it should be stated that there are various views that carry a level of legitimacy to what this 1,000 years or this millennium is. So we're going to wrestle with those different views and consider the text. And remember, even as I prayed, God's word is worth the work of wrestling over even these complex passages. And even when we come to a conclusion on complex passages, we should posture ourselves with a level of humility. As one uh, commentator writes, he says, God's blessing upon us does not rest upon our view of the millennium. And therefore, our blessing of others shouldn't either. Did you catch that? All right, we'll do it again. God's blessing upon us does not rest on your view of the millennium. You may have different views of what this passage is speaking of, and God's favor towards you does not change, right? But when we look at someone else who has a different view than us, our blessing upon them, our favor towards them, shouldn't be changed either. That's the idea. But, nonetheless, it's worth the work. So we're going to wrestle with this idea. What in the world is the millennium? What is this thousand years that is spoken of here? And there are three general positions that are held. Ready to go to seminary this morning? All right, let's do it. Three positions that are held. The first is premillennialism. Can you read that? You've got to put your glasses on for that kind of stuff, right? Premillennialism, it is the view that Jesus visibly returns before the millennium to establish his kingdom on earth for that 1,000 years, all right? Jesus physically returns. Jesus physically, visibly comes back to earth, establishes his kingdom for a literal, as most would take it, a literal 1,000 years. Premillennialists understand this time of a thousand years to be a unique time of peace and justice just after the beast and the false prophet have been judged. And while now in this thousand year period, Satan is 
bound. It's a unique time of peace and justice. This thousand year period of peace will end as Satan, as the text says, will be released and makes war on the saints. But then comes the final end as he is judged and cast into the lake of fire. That's premillennialism. It views that thousand years as most, most view it as being literal, and it is Jesus himself coming to establish his kingdom. All right, next view is post-millennialism. In premillennialism, Jesus comes before the thousand years. Pre-millennial, right? Post-millennial, of course, is just the opposite. Jesus comes at the end of the 1,000 years. And so this 1,000 years is actually the time where the church triumphantly ushers in the kingdom and actually ushers in this unique age of peace and justice uh, where, where Christ's kingdom will reign globally for a significant time until the return of Christ. Does that make sense? Uh, most post-millennials do not take this 1,000-year period as being literal. It's symbolic, right? And of course, this symbolic time of 1,000 years ends with Satan being released and Jesus, of course, coming then to judge him and cast him into the lake of fire. So you got premillennialism, Jesus comes first, and you have this time of unique justice and peace within the world. Postmillennialism, it's the church, it's us that eventually bring in this age, and then Jesus comes at the end of it. And then there is ah millennialism. The 1,000 years is figurative, it's symbolic, and it refers to the present church age right now where Christ rules and reigns in the hearts of his people until he physically returns for the final judgment of Satan and his servants. So this third view is actually the oldest of the views. In the early church, this was the majority held to this view, that right here and now is this time of a thousand years. It's not a literal thousand years, it's a symbolic uh, number of years. And it refers then to Christ's rule and reign through his church. Following? I know, I know. We're going to the deep waters. It's so good for you. It's so good for you. Three views. That, those are the views in terms of understanding this text. Premillennialism, Jesus comes, sets up a literal thousand-year reign, right? Postmillennialism, the church brings in this lengthy time of peace and justice. Jesus returns after. Postmillennialism, amillennialism. Is, is happening right now. We're in the millennium. Jesus is ruling and reigning. His kingdom has been established even through the ministry of his church. And he will come again at the end of a significant period of time to bring about final judgment of Satan and his servants. All right. Now, now that I've got your mind like, whoa, 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 all right? Uh, Let's jump into the text. That's, what is the text saying? We don't just jump into positions. Well, I'm just going to pick, pick a position and run with it. No, what does the text say? Let's look to the text. And I think by the time we kind of look through the text, you'll understand what at least position I take. But I want you to know those three are like, however you, as long as you've wrestled through it and you want to take a position, great. If you haven't wrestled through it, don't take a position. All right. But I want to kind of lead you through the text. Let's see from the, what does the text say? How do we approach the text and the meaning of the text? And then 
what position should we hold? First then, how do we read Revelation 20? We must read Revelation 20 by first recognizing that the thousand year period should be read symbolically. Right? This is one of the principles, even as we jumped into the book of Revelation, this is one of the principles that when we came across numbers, we were to see them first as being symbolic. By verse 4 of chapter 1 in Revelation, you would be a heretic otherwise, right? Where it refers to God the Father, it refers to Jesus, and then it refers to, oh, strange, seven spirits. Wait, it can't, that can't be literal. The Holy Spirit is not seven spirits, but that idea of seven talks about his fullness, right? It's read symbolically. This is how we are to honor the genre of apocalyptic literature. You are not first to take things literally. You are first to take things symbolically. So we see even throughout the book of Revelation, the number seven refers to the fullness of something, whether it's the seven churches in chapter two and three and the comprehensive application for the global church. There are seven churches mentioned because what they receive is actually for the whole church or the seven horns on the lamb's head, referring to the comprehensive authority of Christ in chapter five or six. We've also then seen the number 10 used symbolically to refer to a time of persecution for the church in Smyrna, chapter two, verse 10. We've seen then multiples of 10, combined with even multiples of 12 to figuratively refer to the church as the 144,000. And we'll see similar numbers to this in the closing chapters of the book of Revelation that once again are intended to be read symbolically. When we come to this idea of a thousand years, we aren't to immediately go literal. It's a symbolic number. Even beyond the book of Revelation, we come to recognize that scripture will use the thousand years symbolically. So God owns a owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You don't say, well, a oh, thousand and one, he doesn't own those cows, right? It's a thousand hills, it means everything. He owns it all. Or, the, or a day unto the Lord is like a thousand years. It's symbolic. Now some will say, more of the premillennialist position, some will say, but it's referenced six times in chapter 20. Thousand years, thousand years, thousand years. Isn't that then license for us to interpret it literally? Maybe, I don't know, maybe, but let's go on. The second way we should approach chapter 20, this text, is to recognize that the binding of Satan should not be read as a total or absolute binding. Right, in verse two, Satan is seized he is bound for a thousand years, and he's cast into this pit or abyss in verse 3, and it's shut and it's sealed so that he cannot deceive the nations. Now, you would immediately conclude after reading through something like that, well, this, this can't be what we're experiencing as the church. Right? Isn't, isn't Satan to be that roaring lion who's coming after us? Even John will say in 1 John, Satan is the god of this world. Well, if he's a roaring lion, he's the god of this world, there's no way that right now he could be bound and sealed in this pit. 
This must be referring to some future day. Right? The premillennialists would take that position. This, this is something we're looking forward to, not something that's happening here and now. But we have to remember. We have to remember the genre that we're looking at, honor the text as it is apocalyptic literature. Revelation doesn't give us a whole bunch of new stuff. Remember, it takes us back to the Old Testament, even back to New Testament texts. It takes us back again and again and again when we see things like, oh, Satan being bound, we should go back to Scripture to figure out, okay, is there other places where that symbolism, where that imagery is likewise utilized? Re remember, Revelation is hyperlinking us back again and again as, as one author states, of the 404 verses in the book of Revelation, 265 of them allude back to Old Testament texts. Over half of the verses in Revelation are just pointing us back to other texts of Scripture so that we can download the meaning and bring the meaning into the text. That's the way the genre, the apocalyptic literature, is intended to work. In fact, some scholars will say uh, 550 Old Testament allusions. They say, no, it's well over 1,000 when you consider the Old Testament and New Testament and how those images are borrowed into the book of Revelation. So when it comes to Satan's binding, we don't just, oh, Satan's bound, done, literal. Oh, no, we got to go back. We got to check out what this actually means. Even the idea of binding should be informed by other passages of Scripture. So, let's go back. Jesus begins his earthly ministry, you remember? And he's being challenged by some religious uh, folks as he is casting demons out of people. And they accuse him of being demonically empowered. You're working for Beelzebub. We see your power, and you're actually on the dark side. But this is what Jesus says to them. Matthew chapter 12, verse 28 and following. He says, If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Right? That's Revelation 20 language. Kingdom language. Rule and reign kind of language. He's saying, Already the kingdom of God has come upon you, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first does what? Binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Folks, this is what Jesus has done. He has bound Satan. Even John, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, will say, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to render Jesus bound and incapable. It's not to say that Satan wouldn't have something of reach or that he couldn't confuse right, the, the church in this age, but it's to recognize that Satan has been stripped of his power and authority. That's the idea that's being communicated here in Revelation chapter 20, that Satan has been bound. He is rendered powerless his authority has been stripped from him by the power and work of Jesus Christ. That's good stuff. So even Revelation will talk of this 
in chapter 12 as well, Satan is conquered, if you remember. Right? Satan is conquered in chapter 12, but in chapter 13, he's still given something of power to conquer. He's bound, but still has something of reach. He's bound, but he still has a level of influence. So even when we see this binding imagery, we should ensure that Scripture informs what that binding is. It's not an absolute or total binding. It's not that he doesn't have something of reach, but he's been rendered powerless. He has no ultimate authority because Christ has taken the keys, which is the next point. The key in Revelation chapter 20, this angel comes with a key, should not be read, or should be read, rather, as referring to gospel authority. Once again, keys are not unfamiliar imagery, right, in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, Jesus will state this. He says, I died, and behold, I am alive forever. And who holds the keys of death in Hades? Jesus. He holds, as it were, the power over death and life. He has the right and power to rescue those who are dead in their trespasses and sin, and he has the right to give them new life unto God. So even in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, to the church in Philadelphia, it will be written, as Jesus says, I am the uh, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has, listen, the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, who shuts and no one opens. Again, it's the idea. Jesus has ultimate power and authority. No one can shut what he opens. He holds the keys. But even for the church in Philadelphia, we recognize that he is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Map that on to us, because it's true, and we'll get there. The key is given, the authority is given to the church of Philadelphia. They now have a door that is open before them, and no one can shut. They have gospel opportunity to bring the gospel to the nations, in some sense, without Satan ultimately getting in the way of it. He doesn't have the authority to come against the church. The church stands now in the authority of Christ. Christ is opening up the doors for them, and no one can shut it. Although, even in that text to the church of Philadelphia, the synagogue of Satan will seek to confuse their gospel witness. Again, once again, Satan is at work, but he can't ultimately stop the power and authority of the gospel. That's the idea. Satan is bound in that sense, sealed away. He cannot shut what Jesus now has opened. He, he has reach. He is a roaring lion in that sense, but he can't ultimately stop the work of the gospel. That's good news for us. Now, I, I got to get to another text. The church has been given this authority. It's almost like Jesus now has come to the church with the keys, with this power and authority, and says, here you go, church. Here's what he says in Matthew chapter 16. Peter has just been asked by Jesus, Jesus, who, 
who do people say that I am? And he's like, yeah, some, some think you're Elijah. You know, they're confused about it. And then he says, Peter, who do you think I am? You are the son of God. And Jesus will say, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father has revealed it to you. Your eyes have been opened. The truth of the gospel has come with authority upon your life. You now see what is true. And then Jesus goes on to say this. I tell you, you are Peter on this rock. I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the what? Keys. Oh, Peter is getting the keys. The keys of the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Do you see what Jesus has done? He has given power and authority to the gospel-confessing church, right? The ones who proclaim who Jesus is. Jesus said, I've given you authority. Isn't that what he does when he actually commissions his disciples go into the world? Why? Because I have authority over all things. Now I'm giving that authority to you, invested authority. I got the keys. I'm giving the keys to you. Go proclaim the gospel. The gospel must go forward. And the point is, is that Satan, the gates of hell, will not prevail against the church. And even more so, the church will prevail against the gates of hell. So what is going to prevail over hell? What's going to unlock the gates? What's going to bind the oppressor? What's going to loose the oppressed? The gospel. Satan is bound. The gospel authority has been won by Christ, has been invested in the church such that Satan is bound, unable to ultimately confuse and frustrate the gospel's witness throughout the ages and throughout the nations. He can't deceive the nations anymore. As, as Revelation 20 says, the gospel will go to the nations. We are the fruit of that reality. The gospel is not somehow constrained to the Middle East. The gospel message has gone global. Oh, I just love the representation of the different nationalities, even here, the different ethnicities. It's a testimony to the faithfulness of this gospel, to the power of this gospel, that it goes to the nation. Satan can't stop it. He can't. So the key is a reference to the authority of the gospel. Satan is bound, not again in the sense that he has no reach, but that he cannot deceive the nations. The gospel will set the captives free, and therefore the binding of Satan isn't for a time yet to come. Gospel authority isn't for a time yet to come, but it's for now. Further point then, and our final point. Fourth, the text of Revelation 20 should be read as a retelling of the same story. Let me tell you what I mean. Um, again and again, the book of Revelation functions in patterns. It's one of the reasons why we have three cycles of seven judgments, right? You have the seals, you got the trumpets, you got the bowls. And yet, in each one of those, you see almost like the same reoccurring events, all ending in this day of judgment. The way we've read those three cycles of seven is not to see that, oh, there's going to be three judgment days. Oh, well, there's one judgment day. 
And all the events that lead up to that judgment day are recapitulated. They're a retelling of the same story, but from a different perspective for a different purpose. And so, for instance, again, the, the seals, right? Seals are a sign of authority. And the seals are broken for the sake of the believing church to give them hope and endurance. They're the ones saying, how long, O Lord? And it's to give them something of endurance. It tends to them. But then the second cycle is trumpets. It's a warning message to the unbeliever who needs to repent and come back to God, right? And then the last one is bowls. It has the idea of imminence, that judgment is coming. But it's to testify that God's wrath and judgment is right. So we have a retelling of the same thing just from different perspectives for different purposes. Here in Revelation 20, we have that very same thing. Revelation chapter 19 has just finished, and we've seen a terrible war take place. You know, it's, it, the birds have been invited to feast upon the dead. As chapter 19 ends, I mean, just, and all the birds were gorged with flesh. It's like, what in the world? But then, chapter 20, we eventually see that there is another war, Gog and Magog and all these folks assembled there, right? And there's another throwdown battle. So the question, again, is, are these two battles, the battle of Revelation 19 and the battle of Revelation 20, or is it a retelling of the same thing? I would say it's a retelling of the same war. How do we know this? Because chapter 19 and chapter 20 both reference a singular war that is prophesied in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Ezekiel 38 and 39 speaks of these birds who will be gorged with this flesh. It's almost some of the same exact language. Birds are invited, vultures are invited to feast on the dead, right? But then it will also reference, as Revelation 20 does, this Gog and Magog. Gog was an enemy of God's people, and Magog was the place from which this enemy came. And it has some of the same language. Fire comes down and consumes the enemy. Do you see what we're saying here? This is important because what it's getting at is the fact that chapter 20 is a retelling of chapter 19. It's the same war. It's the same judgment. It's not as though there's this process of the, the beast and the false prophet being judged. And then there's this period of a thousand years. And now God has to come and deal with Satan. Another war. No, it's one in the same. It's a retelling of the same war because Ezekiel 38 and 39 reference both of these things as one single war and one single judgment. You say, what the heck does that matter? Like, one war, two wars, does it really matter? Well, yeah, it does. Because if it's two wars, then we're awaiting this thousand years of peace. And, uh, but... It's to recognize, no, now 
is when the power of the gospel has been given to the church. Now is when the spirit is moving among us to see the gospel go forward to the nations. Now is when Satan can't ultimately get in the way of deceiving the nations. And so it's important to recognize this isn't a thousand years yet to come. It's now, church, wake up. It's time to be about the mission. That's why it matters. We're not, we're not waiting for some rapture to happen. We're not waiting for, oh, Jesus to come, set up a thousand years, and then he'll do his business for us. No, he's given us the keys, power, authority, to go forward in the mission. To see the nations saved for the glory of Christ. That's why it matters. Chapter 20, I don't believe, as we kind of come to a point of summary, chapter 20, I don't believe that that it is a second battle, that we're still awaiting this thousand-year period. No, we're living in it now. We're living in this time, this thousand years, right now, right? It's also important just to briefly note, like, if chapter 19, everyone's been dealt with, even those great and small, they've been judged, done with, who left for Satan to deceive anyhow. You get it? So we have to be careful that we're honoring the text and then coming to a conclusion. So maybe you say, all right, Dan, what's your conclusion? What, what, what uh, position would you take? I would lean towards the Amil because Christ has given us the power and authority. Satan has been bound, not without reach, of course not, but he can't deceive them. He can't get in the way of ultimately shutting the door to the gospel as it goes to the nations. And therefore, the church must be about the work of the mission. So in summary, I would say it this way. Having bound Satan, Christ now rules and reigns through the church for an extended time, i.e. this millennium time, in order to see the power of the gospel go to the nations and thereby to see the gates of hell plundered. I don't see the millennium as a time yet to come, but a time that we are presently in. It's an optimistic perspective for the church who has been commissioned to take the power of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And I think this is the best reading of the text that actually honors the genre of the text. Make sense? All right. Now, no matter what perspective you hold to, I want to give you three brief just kind of takeaways from this. First is this, don't forget the power of Christ. In verses 7 through 10, we see the end of this a thousand years, this symbolic extended time. Satan is released to deceive the nation, and it's all, it's all quite sudden and intensified. And this is then consistent even with the, the three cycles of seven judgments that we see. They, they, they slowly but surely intensify. They ramp up. Um, they actually never speak of, by the way, of, of this period of peace and ease, kind of like shoved into the middle of things. It's always this ever-growing intensification of judgment that is at work. Satan is released towards the end of that time to come and deceive the nations. Jesus will refer to this process of intensification and eventual this exponential like intensification of suffering and judgment that, that comes by referring or describing these times as birth pains. 
It's the idea of like, right now it's kind of at work. We feel it, don't we? We feel some of the contractions at work even now, the, the birth pains of seeing this new creation brought about. It's like, yeah, we, we feel all the difficult. There's a pandemic happening. There's political mess. There's injustice. There's civ civil unrest taking place. We have all these layers of just kind of brokenness at work. We see it happening. Jesus says it's birth pains. It's all of creation kind of waiting this moment of finally being renewed being born again, if you will. So Matthew 28, Jesus says this, verse 6 and following. He says, You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. We're in it. We feel the birth pains. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, earthquakes in various places. Don't we see it? All these are but the beginning of the what? Birth pains, yeah. The process will intensify. The contractions will intensify. They'll get closer and closer together until suddenly the labor pains exponentially intensify. Satan, Revelation 20, is released. He's released to deceive the nations. And in Matthew 24, Jesus goes on to say this, verse 22 and following. For the sake of the elect, those who have come to faith, for the sake of those who have come to faith, these days will be cut short. Satan's going to be released. There's going to be this exponential growth in, in just turmoil within the world. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to cut those days short. See that you... Or verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, look, there is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. What is Jesus referring to? Deception. What is Satan going to be doing in the last time? Dece deceiving the nations. You see what's going on? Look, here is the Christ. There he is. Don't believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise, perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead... A uh, to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. In other words, it's going to be so intense that if it were possible, even the elect, those who are saved, would be deceived. But he's saying it's not possible. It's not possible for them to be deceived, but if it were possible, they would even be deceived. It will be a deception that is intensified. But notice, verse 27, I love it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. There's another reference to that same war, right? It's Jesus coming like a bolt of lightning. Satan is released, deceiving the nations. It's this intensification of labor pains that is happening, and Jesus is coming back to cut it all short. There's no, like, oh, there's a, oh, but in there there's a thousand years where everything will be hunky-dory. No, it's, it's consistent labor pains, intensified and cut short. Jesus comes like a bolt of lightning, as Jesus will say in Revelation 6, he, he, or 16, he comes as a thief. It's where we get the idea of the thief in the night, right? 
Most of us refer to that as rapture language, like pre-tribulation, before things get really bad, Jesus can come back and take us out of here. Don't believe that's the case. He comes at the end to take us out of here, right? The church will endure the tribulation, and through the tribulation, they will have the authority of the gospel to be taken to the nations. But it will come to a point, Jesus will come like a bolt of lightning, like a thief in the night. And what will happen is Revelation chapter 20, verse 9 says, Fire came down and consumed them, and the devil was cast into the lake of fire with the beast and the false prophet. Done. Boom. Jesus shows up, shows over. Isn't that amazing? They, they don't even get to exchange blows. They don't go to the second, third round. You know, it, it is just Jesus shows up, fire comes down, game over. Done. Have you ever seen that picture of Jesus arm wrestling Satan? The popular, you know, like, like, come on. That is so unbiblical. That is so wrong. There is no yin and yang in this world. There is no, like, oh, yeah, this is, this is we better watch this thing. We better get pay-per-view to see just who wins this battle. No, there's no reason to get pay-per-view. Jesus comes back, done, over. Fire comes down, consumes them all, Satan cast into the lake of fire. Again, to the point, don't forget the power of Christ. We try to muscle through, you know, even in our day, wars and rumors of wars, right? Conflicts and rumors of conflicts. I mean, just turn on your TV. What do you hear? All that junk. Don't forget who wins. Don't be taking all these sides. No, this has got to be it. This has got to be it. Like I said earlier, most of us are being driven by fear, not faith in those moments. And what our fear does is I, I need all the articles and I, I need all the, the news avenues to support my sense of fear. And it's got to be this way. Your fear is looking to legitimize itself. When your faith needs Jesus, who will come and will bring things to a final end. Don't forget the power of Christ. Secondly, don't forget your position in Christ. Don't forget the power of Christ. Don't forget your position. Look at verse 4 just real quick. John sees into heaven. He saw the, he, he saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Years. The fact that these people are coming to life, you may kind of immediately picture in your mind, oh, they came from, from the grave to life, physically speaking. I don't think this is a physical reference of coming to life. And, and why is it not a physical reference of coming to life? Well, for one, this text is almost identical to Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, which describes those crying out, how long, O Lord, how long, O Lord? These are individuals who are absent from the body, but who are now present, alive with Christ, ruling and reigning with him. In part, this is the life that we celebrated last week, this coming to life, right? We talked about how baptism is a picture of dying to death. Death, you have no dominion over me anymore. 
because I stand in the resurrection life of Jesus. I'm following him. I get the opportunity to say one day, oh, death, where is your victory? But even now I get to walk in the resurrection life of Jesus so that even when my body goes into the ground, my soul, as the text says, will be present with the Lord. This is the reference to the first resurrection in this text. It has the idea of one who is walking in the resurrection life of Jesus and its evidence in the intermediate state, if you will. It's where our souls leave our bodies to be present with the Lord even in death. So those coming to life even in this text are those who are coming into the presence of Christ. Bodies in the grave, but souls now acquainted with Christ. They are ruling and reigning with him. Folks, it's important uh, that we do not forget our position in Christ. Don't miss it. In Christ, you have resurrection life. That's not just like a you know, Christian cliche. We just kind of like toss around. You get resurrection life. We got Jesus. Isn't that cool? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there is, there is rock solid meaning to that stuff. I have resurrection life, therefore no matter what resistance might be felt on this side of glory, stand firm in your resurrection life, for even in death you will live with Christ. Remember that text that talks about, don't fear the one who can destroy the body. Don't fear, don't fear stuff out here that says, I can take you down. No, you can't. You can take my body. The one who is to be feared is the one who can destroy the soul. And those who stand in Christ stand in resurrection life. Even when my physical body goes into the ground, oh, it's my soul that goes to Jesus. So it's a call even for the, first, uh, the, the seven churches. Seven churches, don't be deceived. Don't, don't, don't you know, kind of involve yourself with with the pagan stuff of the day, just to maybe get a paycheck. Don't compromise, don't compromise, don't compromise. Stand firm in Christ, in your resurrection life. You've been given the keys, you've been given power and authority to proclaim the gospel so that even in death, if by the sword you must die, it's by the sword that you must die, but even in death you will rule and reign with Christ. Don't forget your position in Jesus. And then finally, I tried keeping with the, the P's, right? Don't forget the power of Christ. Don't forget your position in Christ. Finally, don't forget your progress for Christ. Verse 11 through 15. You guys are doing great, by the way. You guys are doing awesome, hanging in here, right? All right, verse 11. As the, as the chapter 20 concludes in verse 11, we're introduced to what is the great white throne judgment. And in verse 12, all are gathered for this judgment day. People both who are great and people who are small. And books are open, plural, books opened. One book is the book of life, and it records those who have come to faith in Christ, who share in this resurrection life. They're recorded in the book of life. But there are also these other books, right? And at the end of verse 12, these books are a record of our deeds. All our deeds will be judged one day in glory. 
all will be judged by their faith in Christ, the book of life, and by their deeds, these books of deeds. Now, for those in Christ, those who are saved, Christians, our deeds, we know they don't earn our salvation, do they? Amen? Oh, man. <laughs> All right, it's been, a long, it's been a long morning already. I know we've gone through a lot of stuff. Jeez, if my salvation depends on my good deeds, man, I'm going to fall short every time. Hell is my destiny if it's up to me. Jesus has done it all. He has saved me. Deeds do not earn our salvation, but they do evidence our salvation. These are deeds that flow out of the wellspring of resurrection life that we have in Christ. Now, these are the deeds that even Ephesians 2 would speak of. Ephesians 2 says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. We're new creatures in Christ for good works which God prepared beforehand, before the foundation of the world, that we should walk in these good works. These are the deeds that flow out of faith in Christ, out of a desire to honor Him, out of a desire to grow in likeness to Him, all in dependence upon the resurrection life then that we have in the Holy Spirit. Don't forget what this life is truly all about. Don't forget that as a Christian, your ultimate aim in life is progress through Christ. It's to grow in faith and grow in love. Also that on the day of judgment, Christ will be glorified through your deeds. When he is glorified in me, as John Piper says, I am most satisfied in him. Don't forget your progress through Christ for your joy and his glory. Being about the work of Christ, fulfilling the deeds that he has given you, will be joy to your soul. Don't forget that life is not about punching a clock or merely tending, as we often find ourselves doing, just tending to little ones or even the busyness of just racing around to get things done, but it's it's a walk by faith to glorify Christ through all those things. It's not just that. It's not, oh, I just got to get my head down and you know, go through life. No, it's that through all those things that we seek to glorify Christ, that we rest in his strength and his power to see those deeds done for his glory and our joy. So on the day of judgment, we can stand and say, Jesus, this was all done for you. Whether it's changing the dirty diapers, we get to glorify God through that crazy stuff. I don't know how many poopy diapers got to change for the glory of God, right? Those kind of things. Just punching the clock. Okay, I got my, my eight hours in or whatever it is. Or I got a ton of meetings and I don't feel like I'm ever going to get things done today. This, it can all be done for the glory of God. Say, okay, God, give me the strength. Give me the endurance. I'm going to rest in you to see this day accomplished. Not just to see it accomplished, but to see it accomplished for your glory. See? Uh, Corey Ten Boom, and I'm getting off here, and i got to finish up. Corey Ten Boom will say, um, if Satan can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. Right? If he can't make you, if Satan can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. Catch it? 
right? But I want to encourage you. Busyness ain't necessarily a bad thing. Unless that busyness is pointed to Jesus, right? That's how busyness is redeemed. I'm not just going to run through this just to run through it, just to get through my day so I can get to Friday night and Saturday and, oh, get some rest, right? It's not just so I can get to some drinks on the weekend. So ultimately, one day, in glory, stand before Jesus and say, that was a, forgive the friend, that was a hell of a week. It hurt. There was so much turmoil and angst. But I got through it by your strength. And those deeds, what was accomplished there, ain't super glorious, but it was for you. And therefore, it's glorious. That will be judgment day for us. That we have progressed through Christ in this life. Done what we've done for him. Don't forget your progress for Christ. So don't forget the power of Christ, your position in Christ, your progress for Christ. As together then, we share in this unstoppable mission to see the gospel go forward and the gates of hell plunder all for Christ's sake. That is the message of Revelation 20. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragements that we find therein. Jesus, thank you that you are just everything for us. You are everything for us. You're our hope. You are uh, you are the authority that we have. You're the strength that we gain from day to day. You are salvation, you are redemption, and you ultimately, as we've been celebrating, are our victory over all brokenness. So Jesus, we look to you, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for this morning that you would take your word and apply it to our hearts and lives. Let it not be just a moment of receiving your word, but Spirit of God, we just give you sway to enrich our hearts throughout this week, even as perhaps we contemplate again on what's been received today. And now, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would move among us. Lord, we never want to celebrate your truth without knowing something of it. And so, Spirit, we give you sway even right now as we close things down. Um, to move in our midst and to bring that resurrection life to bear on perhaps some of the pains that we carry in our bodies and in our souls. So would you move among us even right now? There were a few, uh, what we refer to as just words of knowledge that I believe the Lord has given. Um, and if any of, of you here um, say, yeah, there, 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 there's things that God put on my heart as well that would be appropriate during this time to be shared and, and, uh, and pursued, then, then feel free to do that. I have a few that I just want to share. Um, the th yeah, three or four here. Um, first was just uh, somebody perhaps suffering from kind of a heartburn or acid reflux. Uh, anybody here suffering with that during this time? There may be folks online as well. 
kind of the lower esophagus just burning and discomfort. I don't know if that's just when you when you eat food or or, or what. Um, yeah. All right. And if you're like, yeah, that's that's me, and you're battling in your mind, just like we believe that. God kind of brings these impressions to bear upon us because he wants to work in power. So it's like, if that's kind of you, and you're like, yeah, I kind of fit that, well, like, go for it. Like, why, why sit back and try to legitimize it? Just receive it. But we do want to take time to pray for these things. So, here? All right. All right, anybody else before we move on? All right. If there's folks online that you're saying, yep, that relates to me, uh, throw it in the comments so we can be praying for you as well. Uh, the second one is like um, these headaches over the top of the head and down into the eye. Uh, anybody relate to that? Having headaches? Well, is that is that the same? All right, all right. All right. And the um, the the final physical one is uh, swelling, kind of behind the knee. It's almost like this burning sensation that is felt. Is that anybody here? Swelling behind the knee. got it back there? Okay. All right. Um, I also just sense like, you know, the Lord gives these impressions um, and you hold them open-handed. You know, is it me talking or is it God talking? I don't know all the time. Um, but they're to be tested, right? So we take the risk to step out in faith to, to see if it relates to anyone. But I also think there's some of you here that are just like, I have prayed for healing again and again, and I don't feel as though God has met me in it. Um, and even perhaps when, when words of knowledge are shared, you're like, well, he didn't speak to me. You know, it's not my thing. He didn't notice me. He notices you. He notices you. Just because a word of knowledge may not directly map onto your experience, it doesn't mean that God doesn't see your pain, doesn't know your pain inside and out, and that he wouldn't desire to come with healing power into that pain. So I don't encourage you with that. Um, so here's what I want to do, just a few minutes. We're not gonna like we're not gonna last long here. Um, but for the folks who've identified themselves, and also for anyone else who says, hey, I've been praying for a while, and I would like to see God work in a particular way. Anybody? Maybe that's physical. Maybe that's emotional. Would you say, I, I got stuff I'm carrying on my heart. I want to see God come with healing power. I trust him for enduring grace. All right? We always got to get that side. So we're not... But I also believe that my God's worth coming to and saying, God, I trust that you are the one who can heal. I'll 
trust you for the enduring grace, but I want to come before you and petition again for healing. Anybody say that? Just want prayer? Okay, a few back here. All right, all right. All right, Lord, if you, if you really want. All right, so here's what I want. Everyone's participating. Um, I want you to just gather around these folks that have kind of raised their hand, identify themselves, and just pray. We're not going to last long, uh, but we just want to briefly pray. Don't dance around it. And these moments, we're not, I'm just going to say it. We're not just like, all right, Lord, give him enduring grace if you don't really, really want to heal. He says, come and petition me. Not with qualifications. God doesn't need your qualifications. He knows the issue. He knows what's there, right? He wants you to come with your heart and say, come on, God, move in this particular way. For the good of the person, for your glory, move in this particular way. It's good to keep coming to him, saying, hey, I know, you, I know you'll give enduring grace. You're good that way. But I also know you're good to bring hope and healing into these moments. We trust you for it. We're going to honor you in the asking. All right? So for the folks who raised their hands, uh, go ahead and raise your hand again so we, we know specifically. Folks, get up. This is good for us to get out and pray for one another. So in the next few minutes, let's gather around them, lay hands if they're comfortable with that, and pray for them. Okay? Arise. You can move. Somebody get that guy. <laughs> get him. Lucy. Corey's mom. Yep. Jump in there.
So Lord, we ask that you would move in just kind of healing power. Lord, I ask for testimonies that would de declare uh, your grace, your grace to heal. Jesus, thank you that even the, in the authority of the gospel that you've given us and the power of the gospel, that it includes these, these manifestations of, of healing. God, we pray then that you would bring your healing power to bear upon your people so as it would become then for us a testimony to your glory, that it would be a celebration to your name. So Lord, we ask for your healing touch upon the hurting. And Lord, finally, I ask for, um, um, for, any, for any who would feel that within their soul, they feel as though they have a thorn in the soul. Not just a thorn in the flesh, but a thorn in the soul that is working a level of angst that just can't seemingly be undone. So, Lord, we, we pray where there may be just an inability to uh, encounter your presence or sense your presence or know something of the peace that passes all understanding. Holy Spirit, we give you the right, we give you the authority to move and remove that thorn of the soul. Uh, Lord, whether it's bitterness or whether it's just deep anxiety within the soul, whether it's issues of forgiveness, Lord, we pray even right now against the enemy who would empower that thorn to be there, that we pray against him in Jesus' name. Uh, and we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would bring your healing power and healing touch to the soul. And we pray against, again, the enemy who would seek to legitimize once again the place of that thorn to remain there, that bitterness to remain there, that sense of angst to remain there. God, clean out the soul, wound, uh, bring healing to it, clean up those wounds, and set the captives free so that they can sense and even know the peace of your presence upon them. Holy Spirit, work, we pray, for your glory, for the good of your people, in Jesus' name, amen.
Everywhere you make this space to 